0: Welcome back to another episode of the ADMS podcast. In this episode, we're spotlighting another panel from the 2022 ADMS Symposium titled Sex, Tech, Data, Health. ADMS researchers, Professor Kath Aubrey from Swinburne University, Dr Zara Stardust from the Queensland University of Technology Anna Shimshak from Monash University, and Dr Jacinth Flore and Dr Jenny Kennedy from RMIT discuss the
1: challenges and ethical potential of focusing on sex tech through the lenses of design justice and public interest.
2: So why are we here? Um, Digital technologies, as we know, are rapidly changing the ways that people navigate their public and private lives and practices of digital intimacy. And these include things like using dating and hookup apps uh, or using apps for sexual health information and self-tracking, for example, uh, period tracking apps. These practices are increasingly ordinary and quite mundane. Um, but we are here to talk about, I guess, one of the um, literally sexier aspects of this emerging field of technology, um, which is known as sex tech. And that's really a, a very broad catch-all term. It's applied to dating apps, yes, but also to sexual entertainment platforms and services. So that's things like only fans or cam sites. Um, and it's also been applied to networked sex toys and AI-powered sex robots. The field of sex tech overlaps with femtech, um, a related term that is broadly applied, again, both to sex toys and apps and platforms, um, specifically those that support women's sexual and reproductive health and well-being. So sex tech and femtech have recently emerged as a site in which sexual pleasure and also sexual negotiation. Um, are increasingly understood as data via apps, sensors and tracking platforms that seek to quantify sexual experience. Um, And I should add that this is not new. There are very long histories of quantifying sex in this way, uh, which uh, I talk about a bit in our recent co-authored book, Everyday Data Cultures. But Uh, In recent years, we've seen increasing numbers of reports of non-consensual data collection and increasing concerns regarding data privacy and security. And these concerns don't just apply to commercial or what you might term recreational forms of sex tech. Recent research has found that members of marginalized communities, including those most affected by HIV and STIs, have been found to mistrust top-down Australian digital health initiatives due to data privacy concerns. And this mistrust is not unfounded given the levels of stigma and discrimination around uh, sexual difference and gender difference in Australia. Um, and, And recent Commonwealth of Australia research is pretty, uh, I guess, disappointing or distressing about how high the levels of discrimination and stigma remain around um, STIs and HIV particularly. So in terms of sex tech itself, the Australian startup environment is relatively small, but it includes a number of women, trans and non-binary people who are trying to push back against uh, a space that they see as stigmatized or, or limiting and engage with sexual health innovation and sex tech. So this has provided um, everyone here with a really fertile space for engaging and collaborating with uh, health professionals, with community artists, activists, uh, technologists, and also designers. And so I'm very happy to bring together today this panel of emerging researchers from across the Center for Automated Decision Making and Society to ask how sex tech is supporting or undermining our collective capacity to access safe, pleasurable sexual experiences and culturally appropriate sexual health services. Um, To do that, we're going to share some of our preliminary findings from the recent public interest sex tech hackathon partnership with ThoughtWorks and Bryony Cole's Sex Tech School, which is a training program for sex tech entrepreneurs, which um, Zara, Jenny and myself recently worked with. And um, before we go into that deeper dive, what I'm going to do is invite each of our panelists to introduce themselves And then we'll talk about what we learned at our sex tech hackathon. Um, We're also going to hear about research into the politics of sex robots and the intersection of sex data and health more broadly. Um, But to start off, um, each panelist, please, if you could give me a very brief self-introduction. What does our audience need to know today? But also, can you tell us um, very briefly how you came to research sex tech. Can I start with you Zara?
3: Yes, sure. And thank you all so much for coming. Um, I came to sex tech from porn studies and my PhD um, I did with Kath at um, UNSW and it was all about the regulation of queer and feminist pornography. I was working as a performer and I was interested in the kind of ethical production practices that people were taking that were much more sophisticated than government approaches to porn regulation. Um, But also in that work, um, a lot of the issues that came up were around uh, financial discrimination Against sex workers and exclusion deplatforming from social media sites. I then came to um, sex tech through Kate Devlin's book, Turned on Sex, Science and Robots. And she talks about um, two hackathons that she held in the UK um, in 2016 and 17. And instead of focusing on kind of very hyper-feminized sex robots, um, the participants came up with all these different types of um, kind of Uh, warm furry blankets that could give you inflatable hugs and types of um, robots that were much more uh, post-human and genderless and abstract in their form. And I began listening to Bryony Cole's podcast, The Future of Sex, where she talks about a whole range of different issues from sex in space to cannabis lube. Um, And there was, I guess, a kind of a bit of a disconnect for me um, in terms of a lot of the hubris and excitement around the potential of sex tech and then at the same time a really increasingly onerous regulatory environment um, around the policing um, of sex in online space content suppression and thinking and surveillance and thinking about how the problems were being positioned and how the solutions were being positioned Um, And before I had, before academia, I was working as a policy analyst in the space of LGBTIQ um, health um, and sex worker rights. And so I had done a lot of work um, around uh, HIV treatment and prevention and thinking about a whole range of different issues like um, criminalization uh, and legal frameworks and barriers to access and stigma and was very wary of um, government surveillance and also of tech policy too so I started to think about well what would sex tech look like if um, from that perspective that was in the service of communities um, and how might it serve a different purpose not just sexual health but thinking about sexual rights and sexual justice um, thinking about Um, what Malavika was saying this morning, like not just fairness and accountability and transparency and explainability, but what about reparations? Um, Can we have counter surveillance sex tech? And I was doing a fellowship over at the uh, Berkman Klein Center um, at Harvard. And there were two events that I attended that were quite formational in that thinking. And one was the Algorithmic Justice League run um, drag versus AI workshops, where you can go um, and. to the webinar and practice using your hair and makeup and craft to try and um obfuscate and become unintelligible and incoherent to the facial recognition technology. Um, and that was really amazing. And then we also had, I went to this amazing session, um, by Sasha costanza and Joanna Baron, who have created these amazing Oracle cards for trans feminist tech, which are like old school tarot form of divination that you can use as a speculative fiction exercise to try and imagine new technologies. And that was run by Decoding stigma which was a sex worker collective in new york and so that really shifted my thinking away from those really narrow policy legal solutions to these issues and thinking well what about speculative dreaming and what about speculative imagining Um, and what would sex tech look like if we took like a design justice approach to it so that's how I ended up coming to this space and how we ended up coordinating the, the first public interest
2: sex tech hackathon. Awesome, thank you. Jazz, what, what brought you to work on sex tech? Um, history did. <laughs> so when I
4: was doing my PhD at the start, it was going to be about historicizing the place or lack of place of asexuality in queer communities. Um, following very intense discussions with my co-supervisor, who was Steven Angelides, who you might know, um, we came to the conclusion that historically in the sexual sciences, and I'm referring here to mainstream psychiatry and sexology, there has been a big shift around the 70s and civil rights movements from pathologizing object choice to pathologizing quantity and so my phd was very much focused on historicizing that question of how much is it enough how much is too little how much is too much so tracing the various pathologies in sexology and psychiatry and mapping how alongside those pathologies or rather entangled with those pathologies um, a bunch of techniques and technologies emerge at the same time so whether it's the you know um black and white book of classification or it's the new questionnaires that psychiatry and sexology uses. And the very end of my PhD was on new pharmaceuticals. So at the time I was finishing the PhD and a pharmaceutical called Adi came on the scene, approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the US, not in Australia, I don't think so still, which was meant to be the pink Viagra. It works in a, well, it's debatable whether it works. 0.08 0.08 more satisfying sexual encounters for women is not good enough, um, but that was evidence enough to get approval. Um, and so the last chapter of the PhD was kind of delving into you know, the ideas that um, various medical institutions, including psychiatry, developed around what is a female brain in desire, what is a male brain in desire. Um, and so towards the end, you know, kind of chatting to people and chatting to my co-author on the piece I'm gonna be talking about today, Kieran Pinar, we came to the conclusion that with pharmaceutical also comes a bunch of um, networked technologies. And of course, you know, you need to submit your PhD at some point. I did not talk about that (laughs) (laughs) within the thesis, but then, After finishing it and writing up my book, I decided to delve a bit deeper into um, network technologies, which also matched with the same time that I started my first postdoc, which is on um, advanced technologies and mental health. But I have a very kind of, you know, Foucauldian genealogy perspective on it. Um, And so, yeah, so we started delving into some of the, Um, sex techs that exist out there, and we decided to focus the paper on um, wireless sex toys that are designed to increase intimacy between partners who are distanced, and I'll talk more about
2: that. Awesome. Thank you. And and it was really interesting to me when uh, I was beginning to think about sex tech myself as part of the Everyday Data Cultures project um, to look at some of the histories of yeah, the datification of gendered bodies and, and the establishment of a normative standard Mm. for good sex. Um, And I, when I was looking at a a particular wireless sex toy, which all of us on this panel have probably looked at, the lioness, which gives you a graphic feedback of your arousal and um, your orgasm through sensors in the vibrator. I was really interested in how it might map onto Masters and Johnson's human sexual arousal diagram that many of us would have seen in high school sex <laughs> ed or maybe in cosmopolitan sealed sections mm-hmm. as we were growing up. And and the notion that, um, yeah, a, a, a satisfying experience of sexuality is one that can be graphically mm-hmm. um, mapped and datafied and, and that we can measure ourselves against it in that way. So it's interesting to think um, what a long history there is of this this means of understanding bodies and gender and sexuality Mm. jenny what brought you to the the space of sex tech yeah i have to say i never expected to be here i
0: took (laughs) a right turn somehow um i started by looking at technologies as they are incorporated into the home so probably for about 10 years i've been looking at the ways people acquire, adopt, and engage with devices in the home and the way that interacts with the material spaces, but also the social dynamics in the home, how homes are organized around our dig- uh, their digital practices. And through the course of that work, um, I guess there were a number of um, very gendered patterns occurring both in terms of the people that were selecting the devices to be brought into the home, I was finding in that research, they were t- it was typically men in the home that would select the devices, that would set the devices up, that would um, manage things like interoperability, passwords, etc. And then towards the, I guess partway through some of that research, um, we started to see a proliferation of smart speakers in the home and voice assistants in the home. And um, I had met Yolandi who was doing similar work around device and technology in the home, but looking more from an energy perspective. And she and I were presenting work about the gendered uptake of technology in the home and got to talking about how not only was it men using the home, but also there were now this whole suite of devices that were very purposefully feminized in their nature. They were feminized in terms of the name of them, the series, the Alexas, but also the um, the voices that were defaulted in these smart speakers were also feminine. And we started to think about kind of the consequences of not only the name and the vocal, like the vocalness of the the femininity, but also the purpose that the devices were intended to fulfill within the home, this very kind of subservient, passive, but very supportive nature. And so we started like calling them the smart wives. We wrote a book about it. And in the course of doing the research for the book, we came across sex robots and We had already encountered, I guess, some kind of tongue-in-cheek articles about people forming intimate or romantic attachments to their devices because it was, you know, they're calling them the idealized relationship because they were always available to them and always there, but never had needs of their own but then through that we also came across marketing for a number of sex robots that had ai functionality and that were being marketed not so much as sexual companions but more as full romantic companions so i the ideal partner because they would never nag at you was one of the i think one of the marketing (laughs) taglines so we we had quite a debate about it about is there a place for sex robots in the book? Like we're talking about, like we thought, we were, you know, we're talking about domestic devices. But if these are devices that are coming into the home and being used in the home, then they're they're, they're domestic devices as well. So we there ended up being a full chapter on the book about well, what is this? where, where is the spectrum in terms of smart devices and the feminization of smart devices? You have the very kind of per, like the fully kind of physically um feminized device versus then the kind of feminization of the purpose of the devices and that kind of that just i guess triggered an interest for me in terms of what goes into the designing of these devices what goes into the designing especially in terms of the um the language processing and the kind of the the conversational scripts these devices have what what is um and what the what the potential effects are of those kinds of scripts, not just sex robots, but also what's the purpose of the language that our you know Google Home we're engaging with in terms of how that informs how we engage with each other and how children in the home engage with various devices. And I love that. I think I can't remember which one it is. Um, but one of the sex robots has a family mode. So she can sit and watch movies with the whole family. (laughs) Like this idea of, you know, like they're available for all parts of your life. Um, So I've kind of come from being much more focused on people, I guess, much more interested in people's experiences of devices and of the home itself into more now thinking about what, what else is happening in terms of the kinds of data that these devices are collecting, how that, like how that is being governed? So when Zara um, reached out to me and invited me to join on this project, I was like straight away, like, yes, absolutely. Because Not because I think I had anything to say
2: about sex tech, but I, I knew it was something I wanted to know more about. Awesome, thank you so much. Um, Anna Shimshak was a participant in the sex tech hackathon, but also is undertaking her own research into sex tech. Anna, can you tell us a little bit about what it is you're doing and, and what brought you to your work?
1: Certainly. So I come to sex tech from a background actually in the arts. Um, My um, artistic practice has historically looked at the representation of the body and specifically women's bodies um, in the lineage of art history and thinking about this idea of depictions of eroticism and the kind of crossovers of where that hits potentials of violence Um, and in thinking about photography specifically, which is where my concentration is looking at This kind of um, development of the representation of individuals and the body specifically and the kind of politics um, embodied in that for um, lack of a better word and thinking about that in terms of both physical space and digital space as we think about the ways in which images are shared and Utilized today, but also the ways in which this connects to issues of privacy, surveillance um, and the kinds of potentials uh, both for opportunities for sharing and for depictions of identity and um, ownership of that, but also where there's tremendous vulnerability within that. Um, So in looking at sex tech in my own research, I'm specifically interested in how the body is represented. So thinking about the notions of um, the the contemporary sex devices that we have in terms of um, you know, sex toys, sex robots, even certain aspects of pornography, and how there's the kind of um, archetypal representation of the body that's overwhelmingly, Um, kind of popularized there there's increasingly more diversity in the types of bodies that we're seeing but stereotypically there's a very strong kind of archetypal trope and for me there's a very um, evident connection to histories of representation in art history and in broader visual culture and so thinking about the ways in which we can both imagine uh, sex tech in the future in a way that includes Um, a more encompassing and and, um, inclusive versions of bodies, but also thinking very critically about what are the politics of the way that we represent the bodies now, and what are the real world ramifications of this on real people, their conceptions, and the ways in which these technologies shape our treatment of each other and our conceptions of what sex is and um, what those politics around sex can be.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, and I'm going to come back to you in a minute to hear um, more about your experiences of, of the hackathon. But I, I thought first I would ask Zara to um, introduce the hackathon um, to the people here. There is a, a project report which is available on the APO.org website. And we also have hard copies with people who are physically here. Can you tell us um, what we did, what happened um, and, and what surprised you and, and what did you learn through the process?
3: Yes, well um, firstly shout out to Nick for printing these really amazing reports for us and for, to Kathy Nichols for designing them. There are, there's a bunch here, please grab one on your way out um we also have a few leftover copies of revolting prostitutes which is a book which um, was uh, one of our prizes that was donated by assembly four who are a sex work and technology collective um here in Melbourne so um there's five copies there that could go to um best in best stressed. um and yeah the hackathon we ran as a three-day event in February it was meant to be it was meant to happen here in Melbourne at the ThoughtWorks office. And ThoughtWorks had these big plans of like providing pizza and drinks and having media. And it was gonna be this really amazing like, event where we were all in person. But then of course there was a massive COVID spike and we had to transition the entire thing to be virtual. But we partnered with um, ThoughtWorks, who are a global software technology firm, um, as well as the Sex Tech School, founded by Brian Cole, um, which is like a private training academy for sex tech startups and would-be professionals. Um, so that was great to work with them. And I guess one of the impetus behind it was, um, uh, as Kath um, and Jazz have mentioned, like, um, the ways in which um, sexual data is now being collected um, through especially... Sex tracking devices and femtech devices. Um, thinking about um, the repeal of Roe v. Wade and and how those kinds of that kind of intimate data might be used for various political purposes and sex techs. And collects so much uh, information about your kind of sexual health, your status, your masturbation habits, all sorts of uh, information. And we were interested in the data logics behind what was happening to that and how was it being um, collected and stored responsibly or not. There are also a couple of studies that suggested that um, there were multiple security vulnerabilities found in sex tech devices that meant that they could easily be hacked and leading to things like remote um, sexual assault um, and there are a few uh, cases where um, a bunch of different sex tech companies had been um, had settled where their users had complained that they had shared their intimate data they were collecting it non-consensually um, and without the the knowledge of the users and, and um, they had um, had big legal settlements as a result of that so um, I guess that was what led us there um, The hackathon itself, um, we framed as a public interest sex tech hackathon and public interest is technologies. There's a lot of discussion about what that means. Um, Often it focuses on the common good, um, but I think sometimes that can obscure the needs of many marginalized communities in particular. So we really try to encourage people to think about like not only how they're designs that they came up with would contribute to like human rights or social justice or political change but also like how they will resist surveillance capitalism or structural oppressions how they're not just individualistic types of products but something that is for the collective good something that's evidence-based and led by communities um, something that enriches communities rather than business is environmentally sustainable um, and something that redistributes wealth or resources or power or knowledge. So that was kind of the the theoretical underpinning of it. we invited people with a range of different skills. So we invited people who were had like special skills like fabricators and developers and software engineers, designers, technologists, but we also wanted people with particular expertise. So we had a lot of um, sex therapists, sex educators, um, digital rights advocates, uh, public health experts. And we also wanted uh, importantly, people who were impacted and disproportionately affected um, by sex technologies, especially, LGBTIQ communities, um, people with HIV, people with disability and sex workers. And so the challenge was to come up with a um, some kind of sex technology that met five different criteria. The first was it had to be relevant, so it had to respond to the needs of marginalised communities. Um, it had to be in the public interest it had to take an ethical approach to collection and storage of data so it had to be kind of privacy aware Um, the design had to feature collaborative processes and accessible and inclusive interfaces Um, and it had to be creative so it had to offer like an innovative solution to a, a social cultural economic regulatory or structural problem and we really deliberately didn't use criteria that have been used in other sex tech hackathons that were around viability and commerciality and scalability of the product. Um, Although we might talk about that later, people did go in that direction, even though it wasn't (laughs) necessarily the intention at the time. We had a bunch of prizes that were donated to us, um, including by Sextech EU, who are a um, big conference that happens over in Berlin every year. So the winners could go over and have mentoring sessions with the founder of that and be able to um, develop their project even further. We also had access to the sex tech school cohort as a prize. We had vouchers, $100 vouchers from Love Honey so people could buy their own sex toys, which was a very popular prize. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had different books, as I mentioned before, Revolting Prostitutes. We had um, we, Too, the, uh, we Too Essays on Sex Work and Survival. We had uh, Ruby Hamad's White Tears, Brown Scars. And we had the Bump and Book of Love, Lust and Disability. So um, most of those books were donated by um, Assembly 4 as well as Love Honey. Um, And we had a bunch of people who were there as mentors throughout the day, throughout the three days. And so the way that it was structured was we had a community panel uh, on the first day, uh, we had the kind of speculative design exercises that Catherine threw Miro, then um, people would. Uh, On the second day, we ran an exercise uh, using the Oracle cards for trans feminist tech, um, which was really fun to do speculative design exercises. Then people did group work in consultation with their mentors. And then on the last day, they had to pitch, they had five minutes to pitch and five minutes to answer questions from the judges. We also had um, some really amazing speakers, one of whom is here today, Sam Floriani from Digital Rights Watch, who was a speaker and one of our judges. And the speakers had really amazing um, provocations for the participants. So, Sam spoke a lot about the ways in which surveillance isn't sexy. Um, you know, you can think about protecting privacy as a form of community care um, and solidarity and, and listed a range of different principles that people could build in to, um, to be a feature of their product, like data minimization. and necess- Necessity and proportionality, and then we had Eliza Sorensen from Assembly Four, who talked a lot about the very onerous political environment and the legislative environment around sex tech, and how difficult it had been to run their business. So they they ran, they started this platform called Switter, which is a sex worker alternative to Twitter, but unfortunately they've closed down now around Valentine's Day um, in response to the very onerous regulatory framework. So they were really um, showing that like working in sex tech is not just about the pink fluffy handcuffs. Actually, there's all of these really tricky things you have to think about, like what happens when you create technology that actually harms the people, Mm. your own communities, and how, how do you avoid that? We had a really amazing community panel um, who spoke about a range of different things, including um, the risks of um, data collection for sex workers and people living with HIV in terms of bullying and harassment, doxing um, and and arrest. We had um, people talking about disability and the ways in which um, the designs were often inaccessible or they're very heteronormative and Um, able-bodied. We had trans folks talking about the ways in which Um, authentication and verification practices um, and biometric data collection impacted trans people. Um, We had um, uh, Kat Gledhill-Tucker, who's a Noongar technologist, talking about the ways in which um, sex tech didn't pay attention to indigenous protocols, for example, around dating and also around sacred knowledge. And so there were lots of really amazing kind of provocations that participants could grapple with throughout the few days. And in the end, they came up with five different um, pitches uh, on the Sunday. The first was an organic matters group, which was all about sustainable sex tech. um, And they wanted to have a a research and manufacturing centre that investigated a whole bunch of things like algae lube and mycelial networks and pineapple husks to kind of create sustainable sex tech in consultation and partnership with local um, indigenous um, groups. we had a a group that created a product called Chameleon, which was based on lipstick and the idea that you could have this lipstick that changed color to keep you safe um, and to, you know, would only kind of um, give out parts of your identity in particular situations, depending on where you were and whether you consented. Uh, We had a platform that um, focused on co-design that would put tech companies in contact with marginalized communities um, in order to do kind of social impact assessments and assess the kinds of products that they wanted to create. We had a pitch that was about um, a community space around, based around the social model of, disab- of disability that was all about minimal data collection and human content moderation and queer community standards. Um, and then we had this really cool communication protocol that was all about, um, it was based in the experience of neurodivergent users um, on dating apps and the ways in which communication can sometimes Go wrong, and they they had developed a protocol that would ass- that would allow people to assess what is their preferred communication style, and then um, may use that as a source for potential matches. So there were questions like, do you like to info dump? Maybe that's something that people should know about you. Or you know, what what is your preferred way of being rejected? Like, do you just want the facts, or do you want to be let down gently? <laughs> and and so I think that's a really useful thing for everybody, really to <laughs> yeah, know more about our sexual selves um, and yeah and something that could be um, and built upon as well so um, there were the key things that people came up with you can read about them more um, in our in our report um, but there were a lot of um, really interesting kind of feedback from judges too in the discussions after that in terms of like, what are the lessons for sex tech businesses moving forward? And one of the key things was, well, actually, it's a lot harder than people think. Um, You know, actually, there's lots of legal changes that need to happen to make public interest sex tech even possible. Um, There's going to be a whole lot of barriers to accessing finance and hosting and um, Mm -hmm. funding Um, if you're going to have an advisory board. You need to think about, well, like how are people going to be compensated for their time and their expertise and lived experience? How will that not be tokenistic? Um, and maybe build partnership and joint ownership models instead. Um and also like what happens when it goes wrong, what are your accountability processes? And like how are you going to deal with police who want to infiltrate your platform and what are your policies going to be on that? So it was a real um eye-opener, I think, for many people to think about well, what does this really look like mm. in practice?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. awesome thank you um Jenny as a as another person involved in the hackathon what what surprised you most and, and what did you learn through the process
0: I learned so much I mean the whole even just the lead up to it was a learning process but then the actual event was just um, I guess mind-blowing really like you say like our mentors and our expert speakers at the start um, were fantastic but for me I guess being new to the sex tech space, what I was um, really surprised by or keen to learn more about was just the degree of vulnerabilities in the, pres- in the infrastructures um, and just the, the complexities and just so many different ways in which harms can be both, you know, just inadvertently caused to the communities of users by not thinking through those many, many layers. Um, that you've just outlined there, Zara. Um, I was also, I guess, struck by there being kind of the inadequacies of the current regulatory frameworks that these devices, apps, platforms, etc are having to design within, and the variations as well across different jurisdictions, which also makes it very complex. Um, And the other thing that I know I kind of brought up a few times was kind of an amusement in that, there's another ADMS project that I'm working on together with Anna and um, a number of other people in the the center and elsewhere, looking at voice tech um, entertainment, smart technologies for children. And the exact same conversations that we were having about children's smart tech, We were also having around sex tech in terms of um, security vulnerabilities, in terms of uh, variations in regulatory frameworks and in terms of, I guess, really thinking about how there are devices being designed for vulnerable groups that are not in positions to advocate for themselves and that the current regulatory responses are also not, not supporting
2: them as well. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, Anna, you were a participant in the hackathon, as well as being a researcher in the space, wearing both hats. What was most surprising or interesting to you about participating in the three-day experience?
1: Um, I think for me, the thing that was really a standout was the tremendous creativity that was um, enabled by the speculative design process. Um, each kind of group or team had a combination of different skills and backgrounds that really kind of both complemented each other, but also were largely very diverse. And within that, there was very much a shift beyond the kind of pragmatic, beyond the tangible, as Zara mentioned, you know, beyond the marketability and feasibility of creation. And so thinking about the Oracle cards as the sort of catalyst point, um, it really sort of set a tone for sky's the limit but also thinking beyond physical devices, which I think can oftentimes be a sort of default when people in general think about what sex tech is. And thinking about sex tech not just as pleasure devices, but as this broader framework of information, of protocols, of resources, of community, of protections, of health, and the ways in which the complexities are all layered within one another. And then looking at the ways in which the groups and their, you know, various expertises took these different qualities and challenges and really kind of rose to the occasion. Um, I still think about the mycelium network actually, um, because I think initially it was proposed as a sort of information and way of looking at commerce and capitalism and a sort of subversion of that. And so thinking about how we can reimagine sex tech um, and, and what it could be and the sort of potentials and, and real opportunity that is within the industry.
2: Thank you so much. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, Jean Burgess is giving me the eye across the room here <laughs> at um, RMIT because we talked a lot about mycelial networks as a metaphor for thinking about everyday data cultures. Um, and and have a kind of um, fluorescent mycelial network on the cover of the book because we wanted to get away from the pale blue grid with a robot finger pointing at it (laughs) as the visual representation of data. We wanted a living organism. And I think the event was really interesting for me because of the ways that the the nuances of everyday life, um, as it pushes up against or works with technology, played out both in the process itself moving a face to face hackathon to um 3 days of zoom is not easy and i wouldn't recommend it and <laughs> <laughs> no one our, our our partners had never done it before and neither did we and that was pretty intense um and and so there were there were all of the standard kind of communication um, and and working issues that you have and, on a p- kind of prolonged Zoom meeting. If you can imagine a three day Zoom meeting, you can imagine how good it was. Um, but it was ve- it was very um, interesting to think about how each group conceived of public interest sex tech and m- moving the space. Um, Beyond the kind of um, yeah the the, the 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 standard startup goals of of scalability and marketability and pitchability and venture capital in into a into a, a somewhat different space, Jazz, your work has looked at, um, at, at you know the healthification of data and the datafication of health. Um, what is it in your work that that you think um, is, is so interesting about the ways that wireless toys are being marketed? Um,
4: the short answer would be some norms are incredibly tenacious. The long answer is, um, I think, so p- part of my interest in the healthicization of sex is what we called it, because apparently it's what um, people before us used. So is, well, firstly, of course, it has a very long history. Marriage manuals in the 19th century already had a bit of a sprinkling of quantification. And that becomes much more intense with like things like the self-help industry in the 20th century, pharmaceuticals in the 21st century, that sort of thing. Um, but the, the key issue, I think, at the core of the citation of sex is that it needs to be quantified. And if it can be quantified, then it can be optimized. But it can only be optimized according to certain norms And what we found in our kind of, um, we were mapping the sort of promissory discourses on different websites that were marketing wireless sex toys, overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly heterosexual, overwhelmingly able-bodied, down to the various detachable parts of the toys that you could buy separately. So one of the toys designed for um, cis men bodies uh, had, firstly, it's focused on the act of penetration and also, this is going to get a bit um, graphic, but it, you could buy a vagina sleeve that would be embedded in the toy, and it could stimulate penetrating a vagina. Surprise, surprise! Vagina sleeve is pink and cream and really, um, you know, kind of inoffensive looking. Um, and so it's it's really stark to me that technology has this potential to both disrupt some of the norms that um, sometimes confine us, but overwhelmingly reaffirming a whole set of norms that don't actually match um, how a lot of people are living their lives. The big interest in the wireless um, kind of aspect of it was also this thing of like, um, you know, kind of, we we use the metaphor of data acting as a lubricant of long distance intimacy. So data is transmitted across distance to give pleasure to someone um, somewhere else. And again, um, all the marketing material, it was the pairing of, so one of the toys we looked at was Max, which was um, the kind of, um, you know, targeted for cis men and Nora targeted for um, cis women. And again, it's like this marketing around, oh, the G-spot and the, you know, the clitoris, the, it's there is no... Um, Firstly, it's not up to date with you know current research in, in sexology and in um, psychiatry and sex that um, dispute the existence of a spot, or at least uh, mention that not all bodies will have it, or not all bodies will have it in the same spot. Um, there is this kind of um, you know complete erasure of difference in the name of consumerism um, that always both surprises and doesn't doesn't surprise me. But I think the use of the language around health is also helpful to, to sell stuff because it helps neutralize the taboo of sex a bit. It's like, but no, it's for your health. It's good for you. And one of the things that has happened in recent years is at a lot of, um, well, not recent years because of COVID, but at a lot of the kind of innovative tech, lasting in tech um, festivals, all the stuff on sex and wireless sex toys has moved from its own section, which was on sex and gender to sexual wellness the the term is more explicitly used now. And I think that helps um, companies make their way um, into the market and, and into people's homes.
2: Mm. And, and I know that um, Zara and Jenny and I have talked about the ways that that kind of marketing seems to us at times to be an attempt to sidestep the stigma mm. associated with sex work, yeah. but that they're there is no way around that stigma, and 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 many entrepreneurs in this space still complain about the lack of startup capital, for example, because. Um, sex work stigma is sticky is there anything you want to add to that
3: uh, well, <laughs> even just like as jenny was saying earlier like the the similarities between um children's toys and and sex robots um there's like the security and privacy issues are often very similar but the marketing is different and often like that pitching as sexual wellness rather than a health device or a medical device is an attempt to kind of avoid regulation as well but i will say something in relation to sexual health and i guess and big data um thinking about the ways in which sexual health kind of has moved over the last few decades into conversations about sexual rights and now sexual justice, Mm -hmm. and thinking back to some of the big international conferences in Cairo in 94 and Beijing in 95, where sexual health was a big topic of discussion and sexual rights was first kind of being iterated. And it was uh, often pitched as kind of, not just an absence of infirmary or disease, but we need something that's also positive. We need something that's pleasure focused, but um, the debates, it took many decades for pleasure to kind of come into the narrative and now looking at like the World Association for Sexual Health has a declaration on sexual rights, they have a declaration on sexual pleasure, and now they're working on a a declaration of sexual justice, which I think is much more um, broad because it's not simply about kind of individual rights in relation to the state, but it's also about political economies and infrastructures and power and equity um, and distribution of wealth and knowledge and resources and things like that. But the, the kinds of data that is continues to be collected, not just by sex toys, but by um, governments, for example, a lot of our state surveillance data and national surveillance data is very much about What is the prevalence of HIV? What is the incidence of chlamydia? What is the uptake of condoms? Um, And even our national HIV and STI strategies, they've taken a long time to to have any measurable indicator of stigma. And a few years ago, I worked on a project with the Center for Social Research and Health and Scarlet Alliance, the Australian Sex Workers Association, because there was no measurable indicator of sex work stigma. It was like, well, how are we gonna quantify this? (laughs) How do we put it into then our advocacy documents to get governments to do something about it, um, but we do have, like, at an international level, like bodies like UNFPA and um, the World Health Organization, putting out country snapshots and country profiles where they they rank more broad things around like rights and access and participation um, and equity, which I think is is really useful. But one of the things um, I was uh, speaking to someone about recently was the power of gossip and the ways in which data is collected at at individual local levels about like, well, which doctor can you trust? Who's not gonna be transphobic? Who is gonna be like sex worker culturally competent? Who should I go to? And so people collecting data at that kind of local level and sharing it amongst informal networks, that is really valuable data. And so, yeah, my interest, I guess, is then like how we can think about how data can be used, uh, I guess, governed in ways that I have, a collective or it's, it comes from the margins. Um, and those are some of the prerequisites that we should be thinking about in terms of public interest sex tech.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, Anna, I, I know that you've been doing your own research um, most recently with your Anna bot um, and, and thinking about the ways that users might interact with AI sex bots in the future, but also um, how, uh, robot design might change to um, offer greater equity and inclusion. Can you tell us a bit about the project and and what your findings have been so far?
1: Sure. So um, my current PhD work um, looks at sex tech in sort of three areas. So I'm looking at the representation of the body in um, physical devices. So I'm largely looking at these kind of I call them like Frankensteinian amalgamations because it'll be like vaginas and boobs and mouths all smashed into one. And so I've purchased and analyzed a whole slew of these objects, but then looking at how they connect to things like VR pornography and the sort of ways in which bodies are represented in this virtual space and then thinking again about this in sex robots. Um, so for the sex robot aspect of this, um, I had a sex doll that looked as close to me as I could possibly get, um, and it was hyper-realistic, so it had freckles, veins, it was human size and proportion, and um, she became the Autobot. Um, And so this was set up um, in a gallery during Melbourne Knowledge Week um, in essentially what was a peep show booth, um, and that was a very kind of intentional choice. And so participants could go into the booth and they were told that the AnaBot was an AI prototype. Um, In reality, we were utilizing Wizard of Oz techniques from human computer interaction research. So I was actually hidden um, and I was voicing the AnaBot. And there were a couple of reasons why this research methodology was chosen. Um, One was to explore this idea of what would it be like if you had a feminist sex robot? What would it be like if a sex robot challenged the conventions that are currently on the market where you have these very sort of stereotypical representations of women? Because largely the sex robots on the market are women and they're geared towards cis hetero men. And so, you know, what would happen if you broke that mold and how would people respond to that? but also how would people respond to an AI robot in general and then kind of thinking also about um, bridging this gap between the sex doll and sex bot being this kind of non feeling piece of silicone and the way in which that's sort of used as a justification for both the design and the treatment of these devices, Um, but also thinking about the public's reaction to issues around sex robots. Um, So I was using the Anabot, um, able to kind of have the Anabot interview participants about what they thought about sex robots, what they thought about the way that the Anabot looked, Um, would they want to have sex with a sex robot, what would their ideal sex robot look like. And so there were a lot of really interesting interactions because sometimes there were people were conflicted where they would say their ideal, um, but then they would tell you what they thought a sex robot should look like, and they were often very conflicting. One was more politically correct, and one was more normative. And so you see this sort of ways in which again those kind of normative bodies are really are are hard hard to die um, within the ways in which we're designing the technology, but also there were. Uh, interactions that were really surprising. So thinking about people who fully you know believed that this was an AI sex bot, um, and the ways in which there were really personal conversations, there were revelations, they uh, people confided in the Anabot. They used the Anabot as a resource um, for information, for guidance. Um, And so again, thinking about the function of a sex robot beyond just sexual pleasure, but also thinking about sexual pleasure in a much more diverse and dynamic way and the ways in which these devices can cater to you know all sorts of different sexual needs and communities within that but also thinking about how the design can facilitate that so one of the kind of key takeaways or conflicts that i'm currently you know wrestling with is you know should we actually design these things to look like bodies or what are the ways in which moving beyond bodies or beyond the kind of normative bodies that we so often see represented could really have access and bring in a whole new range of people that really have largely been excluded from both sexual health and sexual studies and the kind of, um, you know, normativity of, of sexual classifications now, but also, you know, the, the markets for what the sex tech currently um, is catering to.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the ADMS podcast. You can find more session recordings from the 2022 ADMS Symposium on our YouTube channel at admscenter.org forward slash YouTube.